You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer, and I use she, her pronouns. If you start a new Rails project today, you're probably going to pick Postgres for your database. And if you have a 10-year-old Rails app, you might be using MySQL. But Rails ships with support for SQLite, a lightweight SQL database. Can that lightweight database be used to make production-ready software? Today's guest is here to help us answer that question. Today's guest is Stephen Margheim. He uses he, him pronouns. Stephen is the head of engineering at a medium-sized company in Berlin for his day job. Being an engineering manager provides him with the opportunity to focus his technical pursuits in R&D projects and in open source. In the last couple of years, these have converged around using SQLite in production Rails applications. In addition to running a few production SQLite on Rails applications at work, he has been experimenting, exploring, and contributing to the emerging ecosystem of SQLite on Rails. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is a very interesting topic, and I'm really excited to get to talk about it today. I think kind of the first sort of question that people might have is, why SQLite? Yeah, well, for me, originally, it came from a need to have the ability to build an app really quickly, deploy that app really quickly, and then ultimately, most importantly, be able to debug that app really quickly. So if I have 30 minutes between meetings and I'm the only developer responsible for this small research project that we have, I need to be able to jump in, understand what's going on. And from iterated experience, having the Heroku Postgres database and trying to understand how is it actually configured, where is it actually running, is the problem in the connection. There was just enough magic there and enough debugging experiences that got lost inside of that magic that at a certain point, I just tried it out. And the experience was really kind of magical to be able to have all of the configuration in my repository, to have the database right there on the server. And even in the simplest cases, to just remote copy the database file down to my local machine and recreate the production environment in the sandbox of my laptop, but with all of the production data and take my time to dig through and know that I'm not going to destroy anything or mess with any customer records. And then from there, realizing that I just really enjoyed the speed that it gives, it really is notable when you get to experience it to go sort of go from milliseconds to microseconds. You're like, wow, okay, this is nice. Yeah, I think that there's an interesting piece here, which is that when we're all learning Rails, we're using SQLite because that's just the default that ships in the configuration when you do a Rails new. But then I think we may have this sort of bias that like, oh, well, it's not a real database, right? So I can't use this and I've got to set up Postgres or RDS or something. Maybe you started with prototyping, but what you're saying is, no, you can actually use this in production on these R&D apps. Can you talk about maybe what some of the constraints are or like how you would pick this? Yeah, well, I think that this is one of the important and more interesting questions because there are a lot of presumed constraints that either have never been true or aren't true like in the last five to 10 years. SQLite is constantly evolving. But there are some real constraints. Obviously, sort of flagship one that everyone talks about is the fact that SQLite only allows one writer at a time. So you can't do concurrent writes. And most people hear that and they think, well, I'll never be able to use it in my web application. But I don't think that they really sort of sit down and do some really basic napkin math to consider what is the actual throughput 
of their application and what happens when you move from your RDS instance where you have network latency, you might have cross-region latency. And if you just move from queries that take 10 milliseconds to queries that take 50 microseconds, even if you have to line them all up, you can do a thousand of those microsecond queries in the same time that it would take you to do one. But that is a real constraint. And if you have an application that reaches a certain scale and has a certain degree of concurrent write throughput that is needed, it's not going to be able to run MySQLite. The important thing that I have come to realize and appreciate is that those are the unicorn 1% web applications. I think that so many developers presume that we have to have the perfect setup from day one. And the perfect setup means the technologically ideal setup. And that means the setup that would work for Facebook or Google. But that isn't really what perfect means. It should be perfect for the goals and constraints that you have for that project. And 99.99% of all web applications are never going to need or want the kind of scale that these massive tech companies and their web products have. And in those systems, you have likely other goals and other constraints and the simplicity of deployment, the simplicity of debugging, the speed, the developer experience, all might be things that actually lean in the favor of SQLite when you don't need to deal with the kinds of right constraints. You're sort of echoing something that I've thought about, but in a more general way, which is one of the things that is often said that I think is not really talked about is like this idea of right tool for the job. It's said all the time, but my own experience is that the place where that matters is so far on the margins that it doesn't apply to most people and most businesses. And it sounds like you're saying a similar thing about SQLite, where like the right tool for the job is probably Postgres in a broader sort of industry-wide sense, but like maybe you don't need that many concurrent rights and you don't have that many users or you're building something small for just your internal team. And so that allows you to have all of these benefits. I mean, I think you mentioned one that's when you said it, I was like, oh, that would be nice, which is like copying the SQLite file down to like do some debugging or into another environment. That's the kind of thing where if you had to do that in RDS or on Heroku, like you got to spin up a whole other app, you got to spin up the whole thing and then connect to it. So you have like another sandbox maybe you're restoring for a backup or something. And if your database is huge, like that becomes like a chore, right? You have to do all of this orchestration to get the production data in a sandbox environment. Whereas if you're just using SQLite, it becomes a lot easier. Yeah, there's so many of these small developer experience wins. That's one of them. Another one that I stumbled into, but I now just use it all the time and it's so nice, is being able to set up per Git branch databases, but have the scheme all set up like immediately. Mm -hmm. and It's literally like two lines of code that you add to your Rails repository. You add something to your development environment setup script and you just use a little bit of ERB in your database YAML to just interrogate your current Git branch. And just all of a sudden, you'd never have to worry about schema conflicts across branches. And it is super lightweight. And it's also easy to move around and to pull data from production into any of those specific branches. But one other small point, just going back to the topic of these constraints, like where SQLite doesn't make sense and the real constraints and the sort of myths that are percolating in the general tech sphere. One of those other myths, I think, is that, well, SQLite is lightweight database, so it can only handle lightweight data. 
which is also just not true. And there was actually some conversation on Twitter recently from Peter Levels, who was saying like, hey, I think my database has gotten, my SQLite database has gotten too big. What should I do? And a few different people were digging into it with him. And he's like, I have a 30 gigabyte database file and I'm seeing that my queries are a little bit slower with 7 billion rows than with 100,000 rows. So I probably need to change something up. And a number of people pointed out, myself included, like 30 gigabytes is not large. It's not large for a SQLite database. It's not large for a Postgres database. That's a small database. SQLite can handle databases up to 280 terabytes. It can handle larger tables in Postgres. It doesn't even have a table limit. You could have a single table of 280 terabytes. What happens though in that situation is people don't take the time. You only have so much time, but to learn the tool and sort of master it. So one of the common things is how big is your cache? How much are you able to do with the data that SQLite has in memory versus how often does it have to go to disk? How often are you flushing to disk? What is your configuration for how the persistence is actually done? Is it using the more modern write-ahead logging or is it using the older default rollback journal? There's so many of these small considerations that have really meaningful performance impacts. But in reality, if you do learn the tool and learn how to master it and learn the different levers you can pull, you can run massive, massive databases with SQLite. The size of the data is rarely going to be constrained. And to that final point, I think that is ultimately true of everything, right? To take full advantage of your tools, you have to master them, which is another thing that I quite like about SQLite and sort of moving in this direction is reducing the number of tools that I have so that it's easier for me to be a master in them, right? So if I can just master Rails and I can master SQLite, how far can that get me as opposed to having to master Rails, master Postgres, master Redis, master the different layers that are on top of them. So not just Postgres, but RDS, not just Redis, but this particular managed Redis. And that's another like major value that I appreciate from pushing into running SQL out on production is that makes it possible for me to reduce the number of essential tools and gives me the opportunity to actually master them. And with that, I have so much increased leverage in what I'm able to do, how quickly I can do it, how confident I can be in what I'm doing in a way that just in my experience, I have not been able to master four tools. Two is sort of my max. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where the more you work in a single tool or like small subset of tools, like the, just the better you get at those tools. And it's sort of like a corollary too. Steve Jobs had this thing that he said once, which is like, do you want to work on the same project for a while, make mistakes and then have to live with your mistakes? And I find the same thing is true if you work with the same tool for a very long time. Like I've been working with Rails now for 13, 14 years. I'm curious about what you have found in terms of upper limits on running SQLite in production, maybe in terms of like how many users or what types or styles of apps this works really well for versus doesn't. I feel like I'm very good at Rails. I've been working on React for a few years and I feel like I am not very good at React. I'm not terrible. Like I understand how it works, but like just the amount of time spent in the tool, right? And it's probably the same thing with SQLite. Like the more time you spend on SQLite, the more of the edges you find. And it's probably true of of Postgres and other things. Yeah, I think in general, a SQLite web application is really tailor-made for vertical scaling. So if you can run your application on a single server and increase the size of that server over time as you need it, it's a really 
nice fit for SQLite. There are some applications that really just need from their very beginnings to be distributed around the globe or need to have three nodes distributed in sort of key regions around the globe. And it's possible. I mean, it's possible to do most anything with technology. It's possible to set that up with SQLite, but it's going to require more knowledge and setup. That's going to be one constraint on the sort of linear rights constraint. I think there are some different benchmarks that you can find. One of the more recent ones that I was reading said that if you had 10 million daily active users, they could each have, I think it was like 70 rights. So you sort of stack them all up linearly. You have whatever the number is, something like 50 microseconds or less. So the point there is that it's a really, really large number, but are there applications that have more than 10 million daily active users that need more than 70 rights a day? Yes, there are. And if you're building one of those, or if your goal from day one is, if I succeed, my app looks like this. And if my app doesn't look like this, then I have failed. Definitely just plan at scale on day one and just go for it. Postgres and MySQL, I think both from being around for a long time and being around in the world of web applications for a long time, have a larger number of more resilient tools around live migrations. SQLite does not. Its support for migrations is not as robust, not as thorough, and there aren't nearly as many tools, if any, really, to do a wide gamut of schema migrations without any downtime whatsoever. So if you have an application that has really high availability needs, right? you need like five nines, I might turn to MySQL. And the same thing, if you have really high availability needs, you can do failovers. The sort of natural path there is to do it manually. So again, you'll have some downtime. It's not that hard to have four nines of availability, but if you start needing five or six, it's probably going to be more pain than is worth it than the other gains you'll get. I think those are the three major considerations that I would make and I recommend other people make when they're considering like starting a new project and what database technology they should use. But is notable to me like how many applications, like the percentage of applications, Rails applications, any kind of web application that are started on any given day that fit very squarely into the sweet spot for an application that solo developers or a small team of developers would really benefit from the developer experience of running a SQLite application in production. Thanks to Honey Badger, I have all kinds of sources to back what I'm about to say next. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime certainly should not be one of them. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute that you're down. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which of course helps you stay in business. Best of all, Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That is honeybadger.io. Thanks to Honey Badger for supporting the show. We've talked about the right performance, but is there any kind of read performance considerations when compared to Postgres or MySQL? Well, this is an area where, again, defaults matter. And one really important point that I think is understood and underappreciated 
is that SQLite itself, while it evolves regularly and is a very solid SQL engine, it has a almost maniacal focus on backwards compatibility. And the core team that is driving SQLite cares far more that you can open a SQLite file from 20 years ago than they do that the modern defaults are well-tuned for production web applications. And so while it is true that you can just install SQLite anywhere and run it and it'll work, if you want to use it in a production web application context, you really do need to configure it. And reads is a really important difference. So the original model that they used for dealing with transactionality was a rollback journal. And the way that that system is set up, writes block other writes, but also block reads. So you can only do one kind of query at a time, which you can imagine has noticeable impact on throughput. You still have the millisecond, microsecond gap. You can do a thousand of those in the same time as one if you have that kind of difference. But nonetheless, over a decade ago, SQLite introduced write-ahead logging as an alternative, and that allows for concurrent reads, but you still can't do concurrent writes. As you can imagine, this has massive impact on read performance, and you're going to see noticeable speed increases compared to Postgres, whatever the level of network latency you're dealing with. But you do have to turn that on. And that's been one of the major sort of initiatives in Rails specifically in the last few months is really thinking through what are the appropriate defaults for web applications, for Rails applications, and just setting those for you. So you can start a Rails new application and you don't have to know, okay, SQLite, they have these two different journaling modes. This is the better one. I'm on this version. I can definitely use it, so forth and so on. So for Rails developers, you really do get a lot for free. For people who are just sort of like spinning up a PHP application with SQLite, it does require some understanding and tuning to get things set up. But in a well-tuned SQLite database, you can have the same kind of read throughput as you would a MySQL or Postgres host, but without any of the network latency. So you've talked about how Rails has kind of gotten better with defaults. I know that 37 Signals has talked about their new line of like once products. And I think DHH has said that all of those are shipping using SQLite as a database that they're shipping with. So it does seem like SQLite is becoming more of a part of the Rails ecosystem. And I'm just kind of curious if you can talk about like the experience of using Rails with SQLite and maybe why that is happening, I guess is the question. Well, on the topic of why, I think it's sort of part and parcel with some of the larger trends in the world of Rails in the last year or so to really double down and consider deeply like what it means and what it looks like for a framework to be a framework aimed at being excellent for solo developers. And we've been talking a lot about some of the benefits that come from SQLite for a solo developer. I think the other major strand, not so much connected to the sort of once product line, but for the larger Rails ecosystem, I think that we have been really coming to appreciate and, and think about more deeply like how essential it is for Rails that we have newcomers that are coming into the community. And one thing that I think it's easy for senior developers to underappreciate how much knowledge and comfortability you have to get to get a Rails application into production when it requires okay, I have my repo and that's going to be running a Rails application and so I'm going to need to 
web server and I need to understand what web servers are and do I need a proxy in front of that? Do I need a load balancer in front of that? Do I need to have three of these so that I have high availability? But I also need Redis and I'm reading all this stuff. I need different Redis servers with different configurations for the different kinds of work that they're doing, whether it's caching or background jobs. And I'm going to need a Postgres database and that's going to be on a different server. And I need two of those because I have to have high availability. So I need to have a replica and I need to get that set up. Okay. So for so many senior Rails developers who've done this a bunch of times, like you just done it many times and you know how to do it. But that is a really complex network topology. There is a lot of concepts there that take a lot of time to just get comfortable with the basics of what these words mean and how they fit together. And when so much of the writing and sort of like education out there to get something actually running on the internet talks about all these things, I really do think that it's a noticeable barrier for people to get that first major win. Like for me, it was such an important milestone to like actually have a Rails app that wasn't running on my laptop. I could send it to my mom and say, here's the URL. She could go to it and see it and really driving to bring the complexity and the time and the cost to get to that point, I think is something that for newcomers, for like our educational materials, for the different things that we are writing and considering has been a growing sort of point of interest and emphasis in the Rails ecosystem. And SQLite fits so nicely into that. Like it's just all in the repo and you really can just get a $5 DigitalOcean box and you're done. And it is noticeably different than those other configurations or sort of deployment setups. There's a part of this too that seems to be part of conversations happening in the Rails ecosystem that sort of all have kind of the same shade to me. This feels a lot like challenging assumptions. If you look at solid cash, if you look at some of the things that are coming, it's the same thing where it's like, okay, well, if we don't need Webpack anymore or ESBuild, what can we do? And you just rip all of this complexity out. There's a lot of stuff happening where it seems like there's a lot of questioning of the status quo and of conventional wisdom happening. And this seems a little bit in line with that too. The conventional wisdom would be you need two Postgres servers, a load balancer, a whole Kubernetes cluster. The conventional wisdom is that you need all of those things, but we're challenging a little bit. We are. And honestly, I do think that another major factor here is just that 37 Signals is called 37 Signals again. Yeah. They're building yep. more applications again. Rails is so deeply an extracted framework mm-hmm. that I think we had five plus years there where all of the major companies from which things were being extracted and brought into Rails were all running really large SaaS applications that had existed for a decade. And that's one kind of experience. And it's really valuable that so much of that experience is getting brought back and extracted into Rails, but GitHub and Shopify aren't building new applications. So there hasn't really been a lot of momentum around like, what are the pain points? Where can we make things better, simpler, faster? And as 37signals has embraced building new applications from Hey to the once product line. They're just like facing some of these challenges and are, okay, we want to have that experience feel great for us right now and start extracting things. And that is aligning, I think, really well with the sort of larger trend in tech to recognize like, hmm, we should look for higher leverage solutions, right? We want to be able to do more with less, whether that's connected to the economy or just a lot of HTMX memes, like who knows, but that clearly seems to be a growing trend in the larger tech ecosystem. And I think those two things are converging 
where we're seeing a lot of these topics and considerations and challenging old notions come to the forefront as we're really looking to find the highest leverage tools. And also we want to make, especially in Rails land, like that experience for beginning a new application and getting a new application available and onto the internet as excellent as possible. And that's under a finer grain Microsoft today than it was five years ago. Yeah, I also think that's pretty exciting too, because one thing that I've kind of heard a lot in the community has been that, oh, it seems like Ruby and Rails are having a renaissance right now where there's tons of stuff happening in the Ruby ecosystem. I mean, even to the point of like, the number of YouTube channels I see centered around Ruby and Rails now is quadruple what it was a couple years ago. And I think what you're saying, basically, the easier it is for someone to come in, learn Rails, do something and deploy it. And the less friction they have, the better that is for the community. And I like the fact that Rails is the type of framework that someone can like work on something by themselves on the weekends and that can still be successful. And that's one of the powers of Rails, I think, is its ability to like let developers be maximally productive in developing web applications. Going back to the very beginning, it's not just for people who are doing something in their free time. This is directly beneficial to the company I work for, right? Like we are able to say, okay, maybe we could expand into this sort of smaller niche market, but maybe not. Let's try something out. Let's build something in one week, one developer, put it out there, see if we can sell it, see if it has stickiness, see if there are easy features we can add that all of a sudden make it sell. Like just do like regular R&D. Mm-hmm. And I've built like three, four of those applications in the last three years. And some of them have died, couldn't sell them. The market didn't respond. Some of them are still alive. Some of them have grown considerably. And it is precisely that ability of having it possible to have an idea and get it out into production in a week. And, you know, and then specifically in these examples, having these really lightweight applications, like everything is centered in the repository. There's so few dependencies and tools that it is possible to, like, I literally maintain three applications by myself because I don't touch them very often. When I do, it takes me 10 minutes because I just pull the production database down. I start looking around. I see, is the problem with corrupt data that my application isn't quite understanding? Or do I have a bug in the code? Find a couple of stack traces, get it and fix it. And that kind of power in Rails, I think, is being more and more appreciated as we move out of a place where people are like mesmerized by the idea of these towers of complexity and there's 16 layers of indirection for every single thing that's happening. Yeah, I think that there's something interesting here, which is this is sort of like part of the agile methodology and thinking is you never know less about the thing you're working on than you know right now, right? Like you're always going to know more than you do today. I think that there's a power in being able to build something several different ways, right? And just look at them, like look at the real things in the real world and say, which one of these is the best way to build this, right? Which one of these gives us the most productivity benefits? Which one of these are most satisfies what the customer wants, right? And that is something that gets harder and harder, the more complex your app gets. One final question that I think is very interesting to think through. If I started a Rails app today and I was using SQLite and then I got to a point where I was like, hey, I really do need to switch to Postgres or something else. Do you have any experience with the migration story there? And what does that look like? So I don't personally have experience with the migration story, but there is a migration story. 
So okay. I know the migration story generally for Postgres. I'm sure there's something similar for MySQL. But in Postgres in particular, there is a very old, resilient, well-known community tool called PG Loader, which allows you to load data into a new Postgres database from a number of different sources. And SQLite is one of those sources. And it has error reporting. Oh, hey, you're going to need to tweak this about your schema. Or, hey, you're going to have this problem. Like you can read some stories on the internet of people trying to do this. It's fairly common because SQLite is a very, again, by default, it has very, very relaxed types. So you can write in your schema, this is a varchar 256, and you can put 512 bytes of text in there and doesn't matter, it'll be fine. Or you can say, this is an integer and put a bunch of UUID strings or UUID blobs, and it'll also be fine. And obviously, if you go to import that into Postgres, it'll say, I don't know what you're talking about, but this doesn't work at all. But that tool sort of will give you those errors and sort of walk you through how to evolve your schema. So PG Loader basically is the story. You can take your SQLite file, right? It's just a file on disk and run the PG Loader script. There is a decent enough chance that you'll have to do a few iterations to tweak your schema because you have to actually have a schema that matches your data in Postgres in a way that you don't truly in SQLite. But then you've got your Postgres database up and running. As I said, I don't know about MySQL, but I'm confident that there is some equivalent tool in that ecosystem as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. This has been a very interesting topic and it was a very interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I also really enjoyed the conversation. I think that we touched on some of these points and trends that honestly, I hadn't connected all of those dots, but to take that step back and consider how there is this growing momentum inside of the Rails community and the web dev community at large to really reconsider our priors, to really strive for simplicity, strive for high leverage tools, and seeing all the different strands that are flowing into that larger trend was educational and valuable for me. So I appreciated having the conversation. Yes. Thank you again for coming on the show. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. It was a pleasure talking with Stephen. He writes regularly about SQLite and Rails on his blog at fractaledmind.github.io. You can find him on Twitter or Mastodon at fractaledmind. If you have any specific questions or bump into any rough edges as you build SQLite on Rails applications, he's happy to have you reach out. We're starting something new on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a comment about this episode, send an email to comments, that's plural comments, at therubyonrailspodcast.com, and we'll respond in a future show. You can send just a text email, or you can attach a voice memo or a file from Google Recorder, and we'll respond. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over at Peachtree Sound for making us sound like professionals, and thank you for listening. You're a gem. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.